in-depth journalism is more important than ever in a complicated, chaotic time. That's why we listen to NPR's Throughline. This is a podcast that appeals to us on so many levels. As history buffs, we love their historical contextualization of important ongoing issues. As storytellers, we love the engaging way they approach and often humanize complicated tales. As news consumers who want to stay informed, we love the way they give the story behind the big stories of the day. We try to take a similar approach on the murder sheet, and we feel confident that our listeners would enjoy giving NPR's Throughline a try. We've been going through their entire backlog recently, listening to them as we drive to source meetings. One favorite of mine was their episode about Andrew Johnson's impeachment. Throughline's coverage didn't disappoint, delving in depth into one of history's worst U.S. presidents. They also did an episode which is rather pertinent to our work, and that was the one they did about the proliferation of conspiracy theories and how they've always been part of America's DNA. That's something I think about quite a lot, given the creep of misinformation and manipulation in online true crime spaces. NPR's Throughline is a source we trust. They're all about nuance and depth and unpacking the messiness behind outwardly simple stories. Go back in time. Learn something new. Emerge more knowledgeable about today's headlines. Listen now to Throughline from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of murder and violence including the murder of a baby. One of the most notorious crimes in American history was the Lindbergh kidnapping. Charles Lindbergh was, for a while, the type of national hero we don't seem to have anymore. Millions of Americans followed the story of his 1927 flight across the Atlantic. He was, of course, the first pilot to succeed in making that journey, and the country idolized him for it. And then tragedy struck. In 1932, Lindbergh's 20-month-old son was kidnapped from the family home. Despite the best efforts of everyone involved, that story did not have a happy ending. Lindbergh's son was killed. A few years later, Bruno Richard Hoffman was tried and ultimately convicted for the crime. The press coverage of all of this was intense. And when you hear about it, you realize that not much has changed since then. The issue of cameras in the courtroom was contentious then, as it is today. There was also debate and controversy, then as now, about how new media reported on the trial. Back then, new media was radio and newsreels. 
Today, new media is podcasts and YouTube channels. To get a perspective on all of this, we spoke with Thomas Doherty, the author of Little Lindy is Kidnapped, How the Media Covered the Crime of the Century. It is a terrific book. In our conversation, we will cover the crime and the trial, and also how it has all reverberated in ways you may not expect. In fact, there's even a reference to the crime in a popular book you may have read as a child. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're the Murder Sheet. And this is Little Lindy is Kidnapped, a conversation with Thomas Doherty. Can you start off by just telling us a little bit about yourself and how you first came to become interested in this case? Uh, Yeah, um, I'm a professor of American Studies at Brandeis University, and you know most of my interest is in media and uh, especially American film and American cinema. But I started getting interested in this case as I, you know, looking at uh, American culture in the 20s and 30s, and the figure of Charles Lindbergh is just all over it, and. like everybody else in America in the age of COVID, I also started getting more and more interested in true crime. And this was a case that sort of uh, 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 was able to address both of those interests I had, which is in American culture in the 1930s and also uh, crime. So uh, I, I found myself moving into looking at the figure of Lindbergh. And when you move into the figure of Lindbergh, you inevitably encounter the the tragedy of the kidnapping of his and, and murder of his baby in 1932, and then uh, the trial of uh, the uh, perpetrator, Bruno Richard Heltman, in 1935. So it was a good way to talk about this sort of bridge in American history from the late 1920s into the mid-1930s. And as, uh, as, we, as I think Anya mentioned before we started recording, uh, not a lot has really changed. I think back during uh, the Lindbergh trial specifically there was new media to an extent in the form of radio and newsreels and now we have like podcasts and youtube 
Right. Uh, and so in that case, it was the, the first time all of these tributaries of modern media come together about a crime case, which is something, as you noted, we've been sort of doing ever since. But because this was the first, I, I found it particularly interesting. Anytime something's the first of its kind, it's, it becomes a template. It sets a sort of pattern for what follows. And then the other thing is that the figure of Lindbergh was so ascendant and dominant at this time in American life. There's really been nothing like it. And most people today know that Charles Lindbergh, uh, you know, flew across the Atlantic and uh, was, uh, you know, had his baby kidnapped and then later becomes this isolationist with tinges of anti-Semitism uh, before the Second World War. Uh, but I think what people might not know is that Lindbergh was unique in American culture in terms of the fame he had and the admiration he had. The uh, When he flew across the Atlantic in, 1920, in May of 1927, uh, the country went bananas in a way that was totally unprecedented and unexpected and really has never ha- uh, occurred since. And when you use these superlatives, it, it sounds today because we use superlatives about everything, right? A, a guy's a hero if he, uh, you know, uh, gets a football into the end zone. Uh, but Lindbergh really was that was the real deal, and uh, the country went ape for him in a, in a way that w- never happened before. And part of that was just what he did was so extraordinary, you know, flying across the Atlantic alone for 33 and a half hours. Uh, Everybody thought he was going to die. You know, people had a rooting interest in him. But as the flight went on, something utterly uh, unexpected happened, which is because we have shortwave radio communication by then, uh, we don't have kind of radio penetration as would have in a few years that, you know, people didn't, most people didn't have a radio in their home. But we did have kind of the instantaneous communication of when he, when the spotter ships off the coast of Newfoundland see him, you know, flying across the Atlantic and then pick him up when he is sighted over Ireland. You get that news instantaneously through the uh, uh, the tabloid newspapers, or you know, within an hour or two later. So, for the first time in human history, people are connected universally to an event that they are experiencing simultaneously, and that's never happened before in American history. Now, of course, there had been you know uh, events people were electrified by, like you know the assassination of uh, of uh, Lincoln, but. We didn't get the news at the same time, and we certainly didn't follow it uh, over the media for that length of time. So I think that goes a long way to explaining why people felt like like they knew Lindbergh and emotionally connected with him in 1927 in a way that was totally unprecedented had it happened before. So that's, I think, the first thing you have to register about this particular true crime case. And you guys, since you you know talk about crime all the time, know that you know in some ways everybody has their favorite true crime case. But I I really would make the argument that what was special about this one is that everybody had a, an intense emotional connection uh, to the victim. You know, uh, Anne Morrow, his wife, and and Charles, and even the baby who they had seen in newsreels. So today, if we're interested in a true crime case. It's usually almost uh, always vicarious in the sense that 
and, and you know, we're, uh, and that's a good thing that we feel sympathy for the victim and we want to see justice done, which is one of the appeals of true crime besides the, you know, the vicarious sensationalism of it. But with Lindbergh, it, it really hit home in a way I think most other true crime cases don't, because unless you're tragically connected personally to the victim, your relation to the case is almost always going to be vicarious, you know, uh, um, uh, kind of you know one degree removed. Where with Lindbergh, we all felt we knew him. So when it, uh, his baby is kidnapped in 1932, it was like a, you know a death in the family. Can, can you talk a little bit about the actual crime itself and what happened for people who may not be familiar with the basics of the story of the Lindbergh kidnapping? Uh, yeah. So uh, Lindbergh flies across the Atlantic, becomes the hero of the age. In 1929, he marries Anne Murrow, uh, a quiet, intelligent, very impressive person in her own right. Uh, and uh, she becomes his partner and co-pilot, uh, navigator. Uh, and uh, they have a baby, Charles Jr. And on the night of March 1st, 1932, in their home in Hopewell, New Jersey, the baby is kidnapped from the second floor nursery. Uh, and uh, the entire country feels like their own baby has been kidnapped. Uh, it was this crime that people couldn't have imagined that somebody would do this. Uh, it was, in some ways, a much more innocent age. There had been kidnappings by gangsters, of course, and uh, but... The, the fact that somebody would kidnap the baby of the most admired man in America was this unaccountable breach of any kind of you know civilized decorum that uh, people felt. You know, what kind of a gangster would do something like this? Kidnap the baby of Charles Lindbergh, and the entire country is riveted by the case. And then by '32, unlike in '27. Radio had reached a level of penetration now where about at least half the country has ready access to a, a radio in their living room or listening to it from a window of a neighbor's apartment. So radio is now bringing this news instantly into people's homes, uh, really from the night that the baby is kidnapped uh, on until uh, the baby's body is found 10 weeks later. Uh, people are, you know, in fact, the expression glued to the set uh, starts coming out at around this time. And people do for the first time with the Lindbergh case what they will do forever after, which is they turn on an electronic uh, piece of equipment to hear the latest instantaneous news, which is what we'll do later with television or you know, your home computer or your iPhone now. That when we want news, we want it instantaneously and we turn on an electronic device. Uh, so uh, radio is – this is really the first time radio comes into American life as a medium of instantaneous uh, communication. Now, a lot of stuff is going on behind the scenes not being reported by the press in the 10-week interim between the baby's uh, kidnapping and the discovery of the body. And, uh, and here the case gets really weird and – you guys are true crime aficionados, so you know that every crime case has these sometimes bizarre, stranger-than-fiction uh, uh, permutations. And the thing that lends the Lindbergh case, uh, makes the Lindbergh case maybe so amenable to various conspiracy theories and different kinds of explanations, is the case is really odd. They're, like, odd things happen in, in this case. And maybe the oddest 
is that this guy named John Condon from the Bronx, a 70-year-old retired school teacher, one of these real kind of local characters that everybody knows, uh, offers in, in a local paper to uh, be the bag man for the ransom exchange because everybody knows that you know the Lindbergh uh, family will pay the $50,000 that the kidnapper demanded in a letter he left in the second floor nursery and that there has to be a, somebody who'll make the exchange. And so Condon announces in the paper, uh, a small circulation local paper in the Bronx, that he'll be that guy, happily. And uh, the next day he gets a message from the kidnapper. And we know it's a message from the kidnapper because the kidnapper on the ransom note left a, a symbol at the bottom of the letter so we could identify the letter and you know, there, there wouldn't be uh, you know, false leads and cranks who could uh, uh, claim to be the kidnapper. And so this guy from nowhere, this eccentric school teacher named John Condon, starts playing an instrumental role in the exchange of the ransom money. And you either have to believe he's the real deal or not. Mysteries are at the heart of everything we do here on The Murder Sheet. But sometimes it's more fun to dive into a fictional caper. That's why we love the free-to-download hidden object game, June's Journey. This game is our daily escape from waiting around in line, getting stuck on hold, and just general doldrums. It is great to be able to just knock out a few levels here and there. You'll get to discover your inner sleuth and sharpen your observational skills by finding clues hidden in each level. Plus, it's like dropping straight into your own cozy mystery novel. You play as June Parker, an amateur detective with a nose for trouble. You get to tackle all kinds of bizarre crimes across a series of elegant and memorable locales. Also, you have a side hustle decorating your own island estate. I love that. I bought a swan pond. She really did. Download this game for a built-in work break. It's a great mental health boost that makes you feel accomplished before you get back to tackling whatever task you have at hand. And remember, when you support our advertisers, you're supporting our show. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Uh, because most of what we know about the actual exchange of money comes only from Condon. He's the only eyewitness. Uh, he meets the, uh, the perpetrator in, uh, and again, you couldn't make this up, in a cemetery at night. And uh, they have a conversation the first time, and then the second time, they actually exchange the money. Uh, the money is exchanged. Uh, the uh, kidnapper sends the uh, uh, Condon and the Limburgs on a wild goose chase, and the baby is never found until uh, 10 weeks later in, uh, in May 
uh, a, uh, a in couple. fact in fact uh, during one yeah. of those uh meetings at the cemetery didn't the yeah. person ask didn't the person taking the money ask Condon a very telling question uh well yes yeah, uh, like what will happen to me if the baby is dead you know and uh and and uh, Condon you know is chilled by that and uh the kidnapper then reassures Condon that the baby is in fact alive uh Condon thinks that the guy has a German accent and even and even though he sits next to him he doesn't get a clear look in the dark at the guy's face uh and he tries to uh trick the kidnapper by saying you, you know uh bist du deutsch are you german and the guy doesn't take the bait uh so uh, this is all according to Condon, that, that he's the only witness to any of this. Uh, and then the news hits the country uh, ten, you know, 10 weeks after the, uh, the March 1st kidnapping that the baby's body has been found in, a, in the woods about uh, five miles from the Hopewell estate. You could actually see the Hopewell estate from the, the mound that the, the baby's body has been found by a couple of uh, 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 truck drivers or a truck driver and his assistant who, uh, you know, go into the woods. The assistant goes into to the woods for a leak, sees the baby and uh, you know, the body. And the news breaks. And America is shattered and shocked by this in uh, a way that, uh, that there's a great line by the cultural historian, uh, Frederick Lewis Allen, uh, who says that, uh, Many people whose memories of the 1930s are kind of vague can remember just where they were at when they first heard the piece of news that the Lindbergh baby had been found dead. And, you know, there are huge tabloid newspaper headlines that just say baby dead. Everybody knows, you know, what baby we're talking about. And at that point, uh, Will Rogers, the columnist who knew the Lindberghs and actually had, you know, played with the baby a couple of weeks before, um, you know, the, the beloved humorist had a column that was printed on the front page of just about every paper in 1932, uh, talks about how the shock and the grief in a nanosecond goes to like the seething need for revenge to find the, you know, the SOB who killed the baby of, you know, Charles and Ann Lindbergh. And this was such a, a horrible story. And, uh, I was, yeah, it's a terrible story. It, it, it really <laughs> is a, a terrible story, yeah. and it says so yeah. much about human nature at all levels. I, I was struck by one line in your book where you said, uh, I'm quoting, the press services, the beat reporters, the celebrity journalists all knew that what was for the parents a waking nightmare was for yeah. them a once-in-a-lifetime career opportunity. Yeah, and and that's uh, you know it sounds a little cynical, of course, and that's usually the way the press re, you know responds to any any disaster for them. It's a scoop or a career opportunity. One thing that people say at the time, though, and you can, if you're cynical, you might think it's not true, but I, I kind of actually do that. People at the time uh, said that if any of them had the opportunity to like give Lindbergh a piece of information that would have helped the baby, they would have kept it quiet and given it to Lindbergh. And in fact, the press cooperated with Lindbergh 
in a way today we would just find extraordinary, like the, the information would leak. So everybody in New York uh, who was wired into the press knew that Condon was operating behind the scenes to try to exchange the ransom money. So they knew something was going on, but they weren't reporting it uh, because everybody was terrified that they would report something that might harm the baby. There was a real fear of that. And, but then there was also, you know, these reporters have kids of their own. There was also this sense that if there's anything we can do to cooperate to help find this kid, we will. And in fact, there's a famous story of uh, Al Capone. <laughs> this, uh, you know, uh, uh, Arthur Brisbane, a famous reporter of the time, time uh, goes to interview Al Capone, who puts out the word that maybe he could help find the Lindbergh baby. And you know, uh, Brisbane walks into Capone's cell. He's in Chicago at the time, awaiting transport to Atlanta. Uh, and the first thing Capone says is, uh, any news about the Lindbergh baby? Because it's on everybody's mind. And uh, they eventually decide that it probably wouldn't be a good uh, idea to release Scarface Al to uh, try to find the Lindbergh baby. But, but that's the kind of emotional connection Americans had. Uh, the, the, the sort of the, the need to maybe do something to find find this baby. Yeah, and, and another thing you write about is that the emotional connection people had, and with the new medium of radio, yeah. you had yeah. people announcers who you would expect previously to be very stolid and professional to adopt a more conversational and emotional tone about the case. Right. And because the case is so complicated, and this would be especially true of the jury or at the trial in 1935, uh, and, and this is true today, of course, this sort of sets the pattern for every time we follow a, a trial now, is, uh, you know, we all become experts on DNA during the OJ case or, you know, a blood splatter uh, testimony uh, that the the details of these cases are being communicated in the print medium on the broadcast medium of radio and then people are going to see uh the reports in the newsreels uh, as well and one of the unintended consequences of this case for uh the newsreels and radio especially is they start developing their own journalistic expertise because in the past, radio would basically just read the newspapers for their news, and they didn't do independent reporting. The newspapers get so mad that everybody's listening to the radio, they say, you guys can't use our press services, the Associated Press and the UP, uh, United Press. And the, con the unintended consequence of that, of course, is that the radio now has to hire their own journalists and do independent journalistic research. And the newsreels do the same thing. Uh, so we're we're having now kind of the beginning of these three great tributaries of the media uh, all coming together. Uh, the press, which had been around for a while, of course, radio, which is totally new as a journalistic medium in 32, and the newsreels itself, the sound newsreels, which had been introduced in 1930, are now doing some of the work of journalistic investigation and reporting. They're just not kind of a dumb headline service. So one of the things the newsreels really contribute is uh, they all drive out uh, the night of the kidnapping. They're there the next morning when there's enough light to start taking uh, uh, motion picture photography. Lindbergh and Ann refused to make a statement to the cameras. Uh, you know, they were still very stoic and modest people about it. Uh, they, although they did uh, issue uh, print communications and pleas to the kidnapper. Uh, but the newsreels say, uh, do you guys have any motion pictures of the baby? 
And uh, Lindbergh at first says no, and then one of the newsreel cameramen remembers hearing about some you know, home movies they had taken, and then Lindbergh remembers that, yeah, we do have some home movies of the baby. They give that to the newsreels, and that becomes sort of the first Amber Alert or Paul Points Bulletin uh, for uh, the baby. So you actually have newsreels of uh, uh, Charles uh, Jr. in the uh, – uh, motion picture theaters that everybody in America is now kind of watching to keep an eye out for the baby. And when I was doing the book, and so, sometimes not when I do talks, I, I, I sometimes hear from older people who will say, "Oh yeah, my uh, my grandmother or grandfather was, a, you know, at that time was, you know, stopped by a policeman because you know they thought that the baby looked like the Lindbergh baby, or we stopped at the border uh, once coming into America from Canada, and my." Uh, it, uh, they, once they found out that the baby was a girl, they let her through. You know? So, like, the entire country was keeping an eye out for the baby. Absolutely. And and one of the things that struck me about this is, as and you kind of mentioned this, the sort of fight between old and new media at the time, the more yeah. established newspapers and then the up-and-coming newsreels and radio. And I think we've seen something similar in recent years with podcasts versus, you know, yep. more established media where i mean you have podcasters who just basically you know read the news or put a more conversational spin on reports gathered by actual journalists essentially and this you know, oh this, right and then yeah. of course the whole phenomenon we have now of the web sleuth so-called who will you know do sort of the, the legwork because there's this whole cadre of people out there who are willing to spend 12 hours and you know going through various search engines to track down information or people uh, so, yeah, we're in the, a very similar uh, revolution uh, right now with, uh, uh, you know, computers, webs, the whole digital revolution. And this is sort of the first time you see something like that with uh, radio reporting and motion picture reporting, which, you know, in the age of television will, of course, combine where you now have, you know, broadcasting images and sound, where in 32 you had you know, the newsreels giving us the images in motion picture theaters, usually 48 hours or 72 hours after the event you photographed, and then radio becoming the instantaneous form of communication. One thing that was really um, striking to me, and you also, you mentioned this earlier, but it was, you know, I think when um, myself as a journalist and then other people tend to think about old-timey media circuses, which this obviously was, you tend to kind yeah. of conflate that with also a lot of really bad exploitative behavior and inaccuracies and um, just kind of treating it like it's just a you know big entertainment as opposed to a tragedy. But I was struck by the details in the book and what you mentioned about there being at least some sort of attempts to hold things back. It seems like it's a bit more nuanced than just reporters behaving terribly um, as far as this case goes. Right. And part, and, and I think that's uh, all explained by the, the special adoration that Lindbergh had uh, in the culture at the time. And, and the real fear that if the press overstepped or if they said that they exposed some detail that would prevent the baby from being released, uh, there was just such terror of the blowback. Uh, along with, I think, the, the, the sort of the, a real feeling that all the journalists at the time expressed uh, of – you know, we, we have children, too. Uh, we all identified with this couple and with this baby, and we, we don't want to do anything that in any way could jeopardize uh, the baby. So you, you've got those two conflicting things, which is that it's, you know, this great story, but I'm not going to report stuff if it could harm the baby. 
So they really did keep a lid on most of what was going on behind the scenes uh, with John Condon. Uh, and Lindbergh, a couple of times, just got in, in touch with the syndicated uh, wire services and said, please don't print this. And they didn't <laughs> in a way that today would be. Yeah, I mean, you, you couldn't keep a lid on some of this information. You'd find it somewhere on the Web and it would surface on Twitter or one of the other social media platforms. Um, uh, of course, uh, a couple of years or so after the Lindbergh kidnapping, they were able mm-hmm. to make an arrest. Can you tell us how they got their yeah. man? Well, uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, as I said, with uh, once the baby's body is found, uh, everybody in America wants to, you know, find and electrocute, you know, the, the SOB who did this. I mean, there's this real palpable fe- uh, feeling, uh, need for revenge. And uh, I might mention just parenthetically something that hadn't occurred to me until I got really involved with this Lindbergh stuff. I, uh, you know, went to see the movie uh, Murder on the Orient Express, the Kevin Brana thing that had just come out. And that story was written in January of 1934 before the Lindbergh kidnapper was uh, found in, in September of 1934. And when you watch it through Lindbergh kidnapping eyes, you can see quite clearly it's kind of a fantasy projection of what we would do if we found the person who killed the Lindbergh baby. Because the uh, you might recall that the murder on the Orient Express is of a gangster who did something terrible to a very famous and admired couple uh, involving their kids, and then the couple commits suicide or whatever. And then everybody on the train, spoiler alert, stabs the guy to death. So the, the twist and murder on the Orient Express is that we all did it. And then the criminals are let go by Perot, the, uh, the investigator, because which one of us wouldn't have plunged a knife into the heart of the kidnapper of the Lindbergh baby? And then everybody else would have let us go. Right. So that is really a very nice reflection of how I think most people felt about uh, you know, the, the perpetrator. Now, the way they get him, however, is the Treasury Department, not the FBI, was smart enough when they put together the ransom money to uh, not not just to record the serial numbers on the 20s and the 10s and the 5s uh, that the kidnapper had asked for, but to have the bills, uh, have the ransom paid in bills that were called uh uh, silver certificates or gold certificates, pardon me, uh, which which means basically that you could go to Fort Knox and give them your twenty dollar bills, and you'd get you know twenty dollars worth of gold dust in exchange. Now the Treasury Department anticipates that with the next next election cycle, Republican or Democrat, almost certainly Democrat, uh, we're going to go off the gold standard. The bills will be recalled by the federal uh, government, and uh, the bills in circulation will be less and less, the gold certificate bills that the ransom money was paid in. So the $50,000 is uh, uh, given to the kidnapper, and then we start tracing the bills as they begin turning up. And uh, every cashier, every bank teller in America has a list of the uh, serial numbers by his uh, uh, cash machine. Uh, and they start turning up, and they're clustering around the Bronx. Nobody seems, however, to have a really good description or a memory of where they got the bills. And then uh, one day, a guy drives into a, a gas station in Manhattan and pays, a, I think it was a 96-cent uh, gas bill. Imagine that. Uh, with a $10 gold certificate bill. And as he's driving away, 
the uh, gas station attendant feels a little hinky about the guy, and he writes the license plate on the back of the bill. And then when the bill is turned into the bank, the, the bank manager, you know, is checking all the gold certificate uh, notes from a, you know, a, a list of the serial numbers, and he gets a hit. The cops are called. They go out and they pick up this illegal immigrant uh, German carpenter named Bruno Richard Hauptmann. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And uh, they arrest him and the evidence starts pouring in. And uh, there's a, a trial of uh, the suspect in uh, January of 1935 in which the crime of the century gives way to the trial of the century. Uh, before we get too much into the details of that, uh, I wanted to ask you about something. I, I don't think this was uh, mentioned in your book. But at the mm-hmm. end of the book, you allude to the fact that in the 70s and 80s, there were more conspiracy-themed books coming out about yeah. the case, like uh, mm-hmm. Anthony Scaduto's uh, Scapegoat, The Airman, and The Carpenter. And I, mm-hmm. I, I recall a detail in those books. I have no idea if it's true or not, and I'd really love to get your take on it, which was that uh, a reporter... Uh, there was a, like some sort of frenzy and in interest in Hotman. A reporter gets access to Hotman's house and writes down John Condon's phone number. Number on, on the closet, right? Yes, yeah. basically faking uh, evidence against Hotman. Is there any yeah, reason to believe that's true? No, but like even if it is, it sort of doesn't affect uh, sort of my media take on it. And very early in the project, I had to come up with uh, you know a, a decision, which is I can do the media story, which I don't think anybody had sort of done the media story on Lindbergh. There are a lot of books on the true crime case and on whether Hauptman did it or whether you know Lindbergh actually killed the baby himself or whether gangsters did it. Uh, there are all kinds of different theories about the Lindbergh case. And I will say, even though I think Hauptman did it, that this case, unlike a lot of other cases, has enough bizarro elements that it will lend itself to an alternate explanation. In a way, some cases you got to get, you know, pretty esoteric to, you know, to think that Manson didn't commit the Manson murders, right? Uh, that with this case, because there's just so many, you know, the whole Condon thing is just unbelievable. And then, uh, you know, like one of the the, uh, the nurses at the Murrow Estate, or uh, not nurses, uh, one of the servants at the Murrow Estate commits suicide. And then they find the thumb guard of the baby, uh, uh, you know, on, on the grounds of the uh, Hopewell Estate, uh, uh, you know, a couple of weeks later. The baby's body is like five miles away. Why couldn't the cops have found it? There are really kind of odd questions that this case uh, raises. But the I think most people believe, and every reporter in the courtroom in 1935 believed, that the evidence against Hauptman was so overwhelming that uh, there's really no other good explanation. I mean, they, they find the ransom money in his garage, right? 
So basically, if they find the ransom money uh, in your possession, you're the kidnapper. Now, there might be another explanation, right? Maybe the real kidnappers came by, hid in the garage, and you didn't know it. Uh, but basically, if they find the ransom money on you, there's a, what, 93% chance that you're the guy. And then when you add up the other evidence, like the handwriting, the wood analysis, uh, the financial analysis of Hauptman's, uh, you know, how much money he had, et cetera, et cetera, uh, then you... I think the overwhelming evidence is that Hauptman did it. But like I say, my interest in this case was not so much to, you know, maybe to solve the crime of the century and to give a different explanation, but to show how this, the media of print, radio, and the newsreels all came together in this case and were actually transformed in some ways uh, by uh, the Lindbergh case. Yeah, and for what it's worth, I agree with you. There's a very strong constellation of evidence against Hoffman. Yeah, and so right, and and if you're a real uh, geek, you can, uh, you know, it's the same way like when the OJ case uh, happened in the mid '90s that we all really became interested in DNA evidence. And the the version of that for the Hoffman case is the the wood analysis of the the planks of wood. They found a ladder. Uh, on the grounds of the Hopewell estate that had been used uh, by the kidnapper to ascend to the second floor. And a wood expert for the uh, forestry department uh, analyzed the wood. And he was actually able to trace the wood to, you know, what lumber uh, a mill that it was used in and where the lumber was distributed. And he finally got to a lumber yard in, by amazing coincidence, right, the Bronx. And that's where he came to a dead end, but that he got to the lumber yard in the, in the Bronx before they found Bruno Richard Hauptman. So the, the the number of sort of circumstances that lead you to believe it was uh, Hauptman are pretty, even though it's all circumstantial evidence uh, are, are pretty overwhelming, but there are people, you know, sane people out there who think there's a different explanation. And if you, uh, really want to go down some rabbit holes, you can just go onto the internet and, uh, you know, spend the next 20 hours of your life uh, tracing various leads. Yeah, there's a lot of rabbit holes in this case. I think oh, yeah. your book is really valuable because, yeah, I've read other books on the case, and, I, and this is the only one that goes into the media stuff, which I found yeah, fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and some of the- well, it's, it's nice you to say, Kevin, because, like, I really do think that that's the aspect of the case that hadn't really been explored before. And I remember when I went to uh, the Trenton Police Museum to do some research, there was a wonderful archivist there uh, who uh, was uh, assisted me or, uh, or just, you know, we had conversations and he was very helpful in, in giving me information. But uh, they always kind of size you up. up uh, are you like a, uh, a really crazy person? <laughs> are you a moderately conspiratorial person? And uh, after a while, I think he realized that my interest in the case wasn't any of the rabbit holes, but was in the media. Uh, so uh, I think that whatever you think about the Lindbergh case, you can still perhaps appreciate the book for what it says about the media angle. I wanted to ask one question that you delve into in the book, and I thought was very interesting as far as, you know, because I, I, I agree with both of you that this guy, this is a very strong circumstantial case. Um, and I think yeah. they nailed him. But at the same time, I also think you, you made a pretty good case for there being some anti-German bias at, um, oh, yeah. you know, certainly in play. And it's like one of those things where 
I, I think somebody can be guilty and also the victim of some, you know, xenophobic uh, elements, essentially. And could you speak more to that and how that sort of um, kind of came through the media and how that, that that's an under that's a good question, because that's sort of an undertone that, that you see, uh, which is Hauptmann is is kind of like the central casting villain uh, in the mid 1930s. He's this very stern, stoic, unemotional, cold German. Uh, which is the new image of the German that is emerging in the American imagination, kind of like this Nazi-like image of you know, cold, calculating, merciless, sociopathic, which is different from the World War I image, which is uh, the German is kind of this emotional beast, the beast of Berlin, right? And, and Hauptmann really seems to prefigure this, uh, this Nazi figure. Uh, and he was heard to say nice things about Hitler occasionally, but he wasn't really a, a you know a party line political Nazi type. But he did sort of fit that in the American imagination. Uh, so the German communities in America kind of uh, instinctively embrace him as being, as you said, maybe a victim of anti-German uh, prejudice. So in uh, Yorkville, Yorkville, New York, which is a very uh, at the time very. Uh, uh, concentrated with the uh, German-American population. Walter Winchell reports that, uh, you know, if you bought a meal in a restaurant, they'd add like uh, 25 cents to it for the Hauptmann Defense Fund. Uh, so the Germans, some of the Germans tend to rally around Hauptmann. Now, by the same token, uh, coincidentally, the district attorney who is prosecuting, prosecuting the case in New Jersey is a guy named David Wilentz, who's uh, you know, a, a Jewish-American. And uh, so there's that dynamic under the surface of, say, the Jewish American becomes the, you know, the night tribune for all of America to you know, nail the kidnap murder of the Lindbergh baby, uh, who is this German American. And I did come across uh, some interesting things in the, uh, the Jewish press uh, about how proud Jewish Americans were that, you know, their guy was basically you know, taking the case to uh, Bruno Richard Hauptmann, that he, you know, he is sort of the representative of American anger and justice. Absolutely. And, and, and one thing that then adds further wrinkle to that, I feel, is then the fact that Lindbergh, um, you know, seemingly held these anti-Semitic views and, and um, you know, later in life became apparent that, you know, at least flirted right. with Nazism. So it just adds further to the like, what is, you know. Right. And I think in reading uh, about this case, in a way, one thing you have to do uh, to experience it as people experienced it at the time is do one of those men in black, you know, mind erasure things uh, that you can't flash forward to the Lindbergh that we know in 39 and 40, 41 with his isolationism uh, and, uh, you know, later the eugenic uh, Lindbergh, uh, who spreads his seed throughout Europe uh to uh, to get Nordic babies, uh, that you have to think of Lindbergh as, you know, the great hero of 1927, who is now beset by this unimaginable tragedy in 1932, and with him and his wife, and especially Anne Morrow, who behaves with such dignity and stoicism during the trial, and you know, America just felt so sympathetic for this, you know, woman who's had her baby murdered. Uh, that not to have that filter how Americans em embrace this couple in 32 and 35. Uh, one thing that, that really struck me, I think I've alluded to this before, reading this book, is how 
many of the issues and stuff that came up then we're still seeing different permutations of today. I can tell you yeah. when the cases we're covering, there's an issue whether or not there's going to be cameras in the courtroom. Can you discuss yeah. how the issues of cameras in the courtroom uh, impacted the Lindbergh kidnapping trial? Yeah, and this is another legacy of the case when you sort of measure what can be your trial of the century or the crime of the century. I think one of your criteria has to be like, what are the long-term consequences of it? And I don't think any case, any criminal case in American history uh, has really had the kind of consequences the Lindbergh case has. So the, the, you know, the legal system changes to make kidnapping a federal crime because of the, uh, the anger over the Lindbergh case. Uh, the, uh, the FBI basically comes into its own because the New Jersey state police were so incompetent that Americans realized we need a professional, you know, high tech scientific uh, bureau of uh, investigation. And then the media angle is that when uh, the uh, the newsreels are permitted by the judge to film the uh, the trial, but not when the trial is actually in session. So he allows them to put a camera in the balcony of the courtroom in Flemington, New Jersey. But of course, when Anne is on the stand and Lindbergh is on the stand and Condon's on the stand, and especially during the kind of this dramatic cross-examination between Hauptman and the district attorney, Wilentz, needless to say, the newsreel guys cannot resist turning on their camera. And they surreptitiously film some of the most dramatic uh, parts of the uh, of the testimony, especially the uh, sound-on-sound cross-examination between Wilentz and uh, Hauptman. They released the film to the newsreels, uh, and uh, the district attorney goes ballistic, the judge gets angry, and they demand that the newsreels stop screening this imagery, which had been unauthorized. Now, film at this time does not have First Amendment rights. Uh, the Supreme Court in 1915 said it's a, it's a business pure and simple. So censorship is a possibility. There were five newsreels at the time. Three of them withdraw the footage. But the other two newsreels say, mm, basically, nah, we're, we're a medium of communication and we have First Amendment rights, even though they kind of legally don't. And they continue showing the film. So it's a real moment for motion picture journalism where they stand up and say, you know, the, the, the print press is recording the testimony. Uh, radio is reenacting it every night on, uh, you know, on the air. And we have a right also as a news medium to show this stuff. So uh, the, uh, the, the press and especially radio and the newsreels are kind of moving into the province that had been the exclusive province of the print medium. Now, also, obviously, all these reporters were very anxious to try to get a scoop and be the first one to announce the verdict in the trial. Yeah. And that some of those behind-the-scenes maneuverings kind of led to a Dewey defeats Truman moment. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's sort of one of the most humiliating moments in the history of the, of the Associated Press, which, as you said, everybody wants to be the first to uh, announce the verdict, either on the air or in a tabloid newspaper extra. And the Associated Press, which had been like the gold standard for news, gets it wrong. They, they had positioned somebody in the courtroom with a little shortwave radio, and they screw up the signals 
And initially, they, the Associated Press reports that the jury uh, recommends that uh, gives Houtman life imprisonment, uh, uh, a recommendation for mercy, and not the death penalty. And that goes out over the wires and it's repeated on radio. But then it's overruled by the New York Daily News, who gets the real scoop that the uh, the jury is going to find Houtman guilty with no recommendation for mercy, which is an automatic uh, death penalty. And uh, that that is the uh, the correct verdict, which is then read on uh, the uh, the radio. You know, uh, crowds are gathered around the electronic banner sign in uh, in Times Square to uh, to see the news as well. That Houtman, to the to the satisfaction of virtually everybody, is going to be electrocuted for killing the uh, the Lindbergh baby. And he is. Uh, by by 1930 standards, though, it takes a while. He's not really executed until April of 1936, which is uh, really a long time because you could go from uh, killing somebody to the electric chair in 10 weeks in the 1930s. That wasn't unusual. You know, <laughs> people didn't mess around then. And uh, it takes Houtman a long time because there are appeals. The governor of New Jersey gets involved. Until finally he's uh, executed, goes to the chair, still professing his innocence, uh, goes to the chair with some stoicism by all the uh, the accounts of people who witnessed it. And then afterwards, the warden announces, you know, before the newsreel cameras and on radio, that the Hauptman is uh, has been uh, executed. And the reporters ask what they would always ask at that time. This is always the first question they would ask the, the warden because, uh, you know, readers and uh, listeners were interested in it. Like uh, and they ask, quote, was Houtman game, which means, you know, did he whimper, sob? And the uh, and of course, you always wanted to go to the chair with stoicism, the way Clark Gable or James Cagney would go to the chair. Uh, and the uh, the warden says, uh, yeah, he was very game. That is just, I mean, and and my understanding because I, I, the the New Jersey governor sort of tanked his political career to a certain extent, or that that was yeah, because he felt that Hauptman maybe was railroaded, that there had been anti-German feeling, and there was, you know, there very few of the reporters felt that Hauptman was innocent, but there was an opinion that a lot of people held, uh, according uh, the the lawyer Samuel Leibowitz, and the woman who I felt when I was doing the book. And, you know, if you read it, you know that I relied on her a lot because I just fell in love with her. Uh, and you can't read every repertorial account, but the, the woman in the Flemington courthouse who just was nails every day uh, was a woman named Adela Rogers St. John's. And she wrote for the Hearst Papers on deadline, like 1,500 to 2,000 words a day, every day, and nobody matched her. And uh, one of the reasons nobody could match her is she kind of had, you know, uh, three, uh, you know, arrows in her quiver. Uh, she was the daughter of one of the best lawyers in America at the time, a guy named Daryl Rogers. Uh, and from the age of eight, she had been sitting in courtrooms watching the best in the business. Uh, so she really knew uh, when a lawyer was good and when a lawyer was bad. So she could talk about it uh, as a real uh, legal expertise there. And, of course, she was a, a great writer. She had been working for the Hearst Papers uh, since uh, before the First World War and had just done a lot of police beat, you know, hard-newest reporting, could meet a deadline. And there are stories of uh, 
newspaper editors around the country just kind of waiting in the office for a, you know Adela's prose to come off the wire so you know before they went home they could read what she said about the case and then the last thing she had and she wasn't afraid to use this she was a mother and a woman and she could write about scenes like Ann Morrow on the stand identifying you know the baby's nightgown uh, with a kind of emotion that I don't think a male reporter could have brought to the case. And uh, you just n- knew the next morning, uh, you know, after Anne testifies and she describes, you know, in a way, she says, you know, and only a mother would know what it's like to, you know, to feel her baby's clothes and to smell the scent of the, the baby. And, you know, women all over America are just weeping into their coffee as they're reading Adela's prose. So she is, you know, to my mind, she was just the best of the reporters covering the case. And she felt that uh, uh, although she said she turned the switch on Houtman herself after she becomes convinced he's the guy, that he must have had an accomplice, that somebody would have had to been there that night to have uh, held the ladder and to, you know, assist with the baby. So a lot of people did feel that at the time. Yeah, I, I was really impressed with some of the uh, quotes you had from Adela Rogers, St. John in the book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also, you mentioned Sam. she was a rich screenwriter, uh, or you know, very well-off screenwriter in Hollywood. You know, living the Hollywood uh, fat life there. And but, however, when Hauptman gets you know when uh, gets arrested and the trial is announced, uh, you just know she's waiting for the call from William Randolph Hearst. You know, <laughs> I always imagine like the you know the. Uh, the the phone kind of like swinging off the hook there as she gets on the plane to go to New Jersey because as attractive as living in California is you know you just wouldn't have the adrenaline buzz she's she's not going to miss out on on the covering the trial of the century and uh, she really did give the best take on it of anybody. Uh, you also mentioned uh, Samuel Liebowitz. That's a person I'd always been interested in. Uh, and so I was really uh, fascinated. You had some like lengthy transcripts uh, and discussions of some. Yeah, of his... he, uh, uh, yeah. Leibowitz is a great character, and we're very lucky to have the live recordings of his testimony. Uh, people, by and large, didn't record news in 1935 because you couldn't use it again. It wasn't like a Jack Benny show. Uh, which, you know, we have a lot of uh, uh, radio recordings of, of that from the transcription disc, the, you know, the recording mechanism they had at the time. And Leibowitz's kid, uh, Le- uh, Samuel Leibowitz is a very well-known lawyer uh, at the time. He had defended the Scottsboro Boys. And he was basically, if you killed somebody and wanted to get off, Leibowitz was the guy you hired because uh, he you know, is famous for getting off all these obviously guilty murders. Uh, and uh, at night... Uh, because radio wasn't allowed into the courtroom to cover it live, uh, they would do reenactments of the testimony. And then they would also, as we do today on cable news, have a lawyer like, uh, you know, a good lawyer comment on the case. So Lieberman did a postmortem on the case every night. And uh, his uh, his kids went into the attic after he died, and they found the transcription discs, donated them to the uh, the Paley Center in New York, where you can listen to them, uh, and that's some, and that was a real treasure because most of what I found on radio, I had to rely on uh, not even transcripts, but contemporary reports in the press the next day, uh, because there's so little, uh, in uh, so few radio archives that are available. So it's just such a real treat to you know hear Leibowitz comment on the case, uh, you know, from the horse's mouth. 
Yeah, absolutely. As 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 journalists, but also as people who love history, that's just like such a coup that that those ended up surviving. Right, and then when you sort of find something that you you didn't expect to find, uh, like the the Leibowitz transcripts, there is is just really wonderful. I always love those stories where you know people go into the attic of granddad or something, and you know find this you know a piece of film or you know a radio transcript or something. Uh, you know, absolutely, especially for radio. Radio is really hard. You know. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, though, and you mentioned this earlier, um, you know, in terms of how this changed the media and the crime beat forever. Obviously, it had, I'm sure, somewhat of a different impact on, you know, newspapers mm-hmm. versus radio. But in, in your opinion, what are some of the lasting effects that we still see today? Well, one of the lasting effects for decades, in fact, and this may sound really odd because we live in an age in which, you know, you get in front of a, you know, a lawyer on his way to a camera, you're going to be trampled because, you know, they just love the media attention. At the time, uh, you know, many people thought of the law as this very august and uh, respectable profession that you didn't want to sully with uh, uh, too much media. So, after the the, the uh, Houtman trial, and there really was a good deal of sensationalism in, in the case that, you know, calmer observers thought it's probably not a good thing to have a mob of people outside the, the courtroom where the jury is deliberating, you know, screaming, kill Houtman, kill the kill the German as the jury is deliberating and they can actually uh, hear this. Uh, so uh, after the case and once the newsreels were released of it, the American Bar Association passes something called Canon 35, which said that, uh, you know, the legal profession shouldn't admit uh radio or newsreels uh, or photographers uh, to uh, be present during an actual uh, court trial, that it would uh, hurt the dignity and solemnity of the American legal system. And that's why for decades, up until the age of court TV, uh, state courts kept uh, cameras out of the courtroom. So you might remember, uh, you're probably too young to remember, but you've probably seen pictures of some of the famous cases in the 60s and 70s, like the Manson trial, which was a state trial in California. Uh, you know, all the images you have of that are of uh, sketch artists, right, and illustrators who were allowed into the courtroom to sketch and to give a sense of what was actually going on. So this was a really a boon for a starving sketch artist who, you know, for, for decades were the only way we could get uh, images into a state trial. And that starts changing in the 1970s when uh, a lot of states and judges uh, began allowing cameras into the courtroom. And, uh, and so by the 1980s, uh, virtually every state has some provision for allowing a live television transmission at the discretion of the judge of, uh, of a courtroom uh, here uh, trial. Uh, so, you know, that's why we had court TV in the 1980s. And it's why we all got to watch, of course, the OJ trials. Now, uh, one of the interesting things in terms of, you know, access to cameras in the courtroom that OJ uh, might have had an impact on is that, I don't know if you recall, but there was really, uh, the federal courts have always uh, forbidden cameras in a federal courtroom. So all the courtrooms that we've seen televised are state trials. And there was a, a big move among, you know, the media and other kind of commentators that said, well, you know, the public has a right to see federal courtroom proceedings as well. 
and cameras should be allowed into a federal courtroom. And I think the experience of what happened with cameras in the courtroom with OJ was so distressing, frankly, where we had you know a celebrity starstruck judge and certainly the sensationalism of the case uh, in many minds uh, uh, didn't lend its and the televising of the case didn't lend itself to a dignity and solemnity and justice that after the OJ case, there's been almost no urgency to put cameras in the federal courthouses. So it remains one of the few places in, in our lives, really, in American culture that we don't allow cameras into. And then in terms of um, the public, you mentioned this, that it, with with Lindbergh, there was this intense emotional connection from so many people in a way that really hasn't necessarily been matched. Um, but yeah. how did this change the way Americans consumed true crime, um, you know, going forward to the, you know, to the point where we still see it today? Well, uh, because there was such an intensity of interest in this case, anytime you had kind of an equivalent case, like I guess, the you know, the Manson murders might be another example of this, or the Ted Bundy case, and then the OJ case in, in, in the 90s, is that we all sort of become instant armchair prognosticators, and we all become experts in the forensic evidence and become almost uh, obsessively interested in the minor details of the case. And that's something about a court case that I've always found, and true crime, in fact, that's always kind of fascinating to me. Uh, I teach a class on true crime, and the books that best chronicle true crime are different than other kinds of nonfiction or, or fictional works, because in most motion pictures and in most books, you as a reader are saying, cut to the chase. I want to get to the interesting part. But what's, I think, unique to true crime is we don't mind going down a dead end for, for 40 pages because that's what the cop did, too, even if there's no payoff. Now, in an ordinary movie, in an ordinary book, if it doesn't contribute to the overall narrative and the solution of the narrative, you just cut that stuff out. But in true crime, it sort of lets you go down the dead end with the detective. Uh, so I think that's one of the legacies is that our, our sort of obsession with these cases uh, is such that we're willing to go down some of the dead ends along with the uh, the detectives. So there was a lot of stuff in the Lindbergh case that just didn't pan out or that we want to become experts with handwriting analysis or, you know, who's really interested in wood grain, uh, you know, unless you work for the Forestry Service. But by all accounts, the testimony of the wood expert, which went on for hours and hours, had the courtroom absolutely riveted because it's this kind of long term detective story that ultimately leads you to the lumberyard in the Bronx. Absolutely. That's so well said. And I, I just I mean, I just want to commend you. This was a really interesting book. And, and especially, I mean, so much of it were just, you know, Kevin and I would be reading it and then just like talking about like, wait a minute, this is still happening. Um, yeah. Oh, thanks so much for that. Because I, I, I do think that's one of the reasons maybe to remember the Lindbergh case is that as you're reading about it, go, oh, yeah, that's happening right now with the Murdoch case, right? That that you're, you're getting, it's basically sets the pattern for everything that, that comes at, uh, afterwards was that confluence of a true crime case, and then now we have the necessary media, all of which give us something special. So uh, radio and broadcasting gives us the news instantaneously. Uh, the newsreels, or you know, now television, gives us the imagery 
of, you know, the suspect, uh, you know, at the defense table or, you know, an emotional cross-examination. And then the print press, and I think this is why we still love print, uh, can explain things in a very coherent and rigorous way. And if you really want to know about, you know, wood grain or DNA analysis or, uh, you know, blood splatter uh, uh, patterns, then you really have to go to the print press to give you those sort of details. And one of the things that's true of true crime people, and it's true of undergraduates too, who I teach, you know, I, you always get sort of the, uh, you know, the true crime geeks that come into the class and they are actually willing to go into that depth of uh, uh, investigation uh, because uh, that's what you need for, uh, to solve these crimes. It really is an interesting genre, isn't it? It's not like the other genres. It, it's really not. I, I come from a retail reporting background, and I can tell you that you know there's much more of an appetite for very granular, very niche coverage. And sometimes I have to you know set aside my previous journalistic experience because it's like no people do care about this very specific technological investigative aspect of it that we should go into, basically. Right. Uh, And it's curious, you know, the the clip I always show is from a wonderful frontline documentary on the Kenneth Bianchi murders. And it has the two detectives who are sitting on the steps of Bianchi's uh, uh, house in Seattle where they they know the murder has been committed, uh, but there's no evidence. So the two detectives uh, talk about how they, you know, they get a flashlight and a magnifying glass and spend uh, six hours just going through the carpeting on the steps. And at the end of the six hours, they have, uh, you know, a, a hair strand and, a, and pubic hair evidence, you know? And it's like, those are the guys, right? Those are the, the, the true crime dudes. They're on their hands and knees with a magnifying glass and a, and a flashlight, you know, getting the evidence that you need to convict the serial killer. It's not like, you know, a, a Tom Cruise kind of, kind of detective hero. It's, you know, the guy that's on his hands and knees with the uh, magnifying glass. Absolutely. And and listen, we've really enjoyed this talk. Is there any aspect, um, obviously your book goes into like a number of different things with, with the media and, and aspects of this. Is there anything we didn't ask you about it that you think it's important for listeners? Well, to one understand? thing your listeners might find interesting, and this is just kind of one of those, to me, tangential factoids I found fascinating. I dare say most of your, of, uh, your listeners are uh, – acquainted with uh, the uh, book Where the Wild Things Are, right? Yes. And the uh, the uh, illustrator, Morris Sendak, of that uh, was a young child during the Lindbergh case, and he became traumatized and obsessed by it for the rest of his life. So the little baby that you see, the little boy at the, on the cover of Where the Wild Things Are with the nightgown, that's the Lindbergh baby, which always haunted his imagination. Oh my God! I'm, I did not. That's that's wild. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he he said in interviews that you know he's a very young poor boy, uh, you know, in New York at the time, and uh, if something could happen to the the rich child of Charles Lindbergh, then something could happen to him. Uh, he was very young at the time. I don't know whether this is a false retrospective memory, but he really uh, was sort of haunted by that. And he did do a book on the baby itself, but he also, when you see that sort of uh, little child, next time you look at the cover of Where the Wild Things Are, uh, that's uh, clearly the Lindbergh baby's nightgown. Uh, 
you can't see us, but my jaw is like hanging <laughs> open. That is, uh, wow, that's, that's kind of haunting. Yeah, it is. Yeah. You, you, I find, you know, once you keep your eyes open for it, you sort of see the Lindbergh baby reverberation everywhere. Uh, so like I was reading Patty Smith's memoir, uh, Just Kids, about her and Maplethorpe. And she talks about how her mother always worried about her because, you know, the mother grew up with the, the Lindbergh case. And even though, like, they could, you know, she came from a, a very working class uh, background, even though there, there would have been no ransom for young Patty Smith, her mother was always very concerned not to let her out of her sight. And it's so interesting because it's like everyday people who, you know, yeah. wouldn't be held for ransom, as you said. You know, it, 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 it the effect of true crime is that it sort of permeates into your mind and kind of. You know, yeah. maybe to an extent that might be somewhat damaging, but it just shows you how, like, yeah. you know, sympathetic and empathetic human beings are. Yeah, yeah. And that is the good thing. I know people talk a lot about sort of the sensationalism and the vicarious kind of purient interest in it. But I really do think that true crime is a, uh, you know, a genre where people do have, like, sympathy for the victim. It's a very victim-centered. It's why true crime is the only nonfiction genre that is female centric and female skewed. You know, publishers will always tell you that, you know, basically the gender cliche is true. Yeah, that, that men read uh, histories and biographies and women read uh, novels and uh, romances, with the exception of true crime. You know, so my, my classes at Brandeis always skew like 80% female for true crime, right? Yeah. Okay. And you probably know if you go to a true crime convention. Absolutely. Yeah? And I know our mostly audience. women. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's really it's fa it's so fascinating to me. But this this has been this has been a great talk. We just want to say thank you so much. We really oh, it's appreciate been a pleasure it. chatting with you. I appreciate the the conversation and the, the careful reading of the book. And I, I really it's been a pleasure chatting with you guys. We want to thank Thomas Doherty for speaking with us. His book Little Lindy is Kidnapped is great, and we recommend you get a copy from wherever you buy books. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murdersheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet discussion group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>